If you recall, a couple weeks back when we studied 1 Corinthians 8 together, we saw that Paul challenged the Corinthian believers, some of whom were quite proud, to set aside their freedoms. Do you remember this? To set aside their liberties for the sake of loving the brothers and sisters who were in the body there. We called it liberty-limiting love. Does this ring any bells? Remember that? Going back a couple weeks? The whole issue there was uh, eating meat that had been offered to idols. And Paul basically said to that congregation, yes, you have a right to eat meat that's been offered to idols. The scriptures don't forbid that. But if you truly love your brother, if you truly love your sister, you will avoid placing any stumbling block in their path that would cause them to be tripped up spiritually. And so we learn the principle that true love relinquishes rights, limits liberties, foregoes freedoms for the sake of loving others. And the memory verse from the end of that chapter is when Paul said, if eating meat causes my brother to stumble, then I will eat no meat lest I cause my brother to stumble. As we approach chapter 9 today, we're going to see Paul illustrate that same principle of liberty-limiting love, but now from his own life, He's going, to point to, he's going to point to a choice that he made to relinquish, let go of a right that he could have claimed. And we're going to see three things in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. First of all, Paul establishing his right to receive financial support from those to whom he preached the gospel. We're going to watch him build an airtight case for his right to that, to ask for and receive financial support. In the gospel, then we're going to see him relinquish that right and let it go for the sake of the gospel. And then we're going to hear Paul share his passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ and for seeing it expand and spread and his own desire and willingness to sacrifice anything and pay any price personally for the spread of the gospel. So let's begin in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 9. What we're going to see here are 17 questions, (laughs) I counted them, that Paul asks, kind of rhetorical questions as he builds a case for his right to receive financial support from the gospel. Verse 1, am I not free? And I take that to mean free in Christ. Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Now are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. And right away you can tell that Paul's a little bit on the defense, can't you? He's got critics. He's rocked back on his heels a little bit. There are those who are accusing Paul of being in the ministry for money. And so in verse 3 he says, This is my defense to those who would examine me, my critics. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Now, we know from chapter 7 that Paul was single. He was unmarried at this time. But he's saying, as an apostle, don't we have a right to, to bring along our spouse and be supported by you in our travels and in our preaching of the gospel? Verse 6, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? A little bit of sarcasm there. This is just Paul being real, okay? It's getting real. Verse 7, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? No one pays to go to boot camp, right? (laughs) 
Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Verse 8. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. (laughs) Feed your animals that are doing the work for you. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So he's building a case, a case for support. And he outlines six reasons or grounds for his belief that he has the right to receive financial support. Number one, he says, I'm an apostle. And in that day and age, the apostles were a big deal. There was only a handful of them in the world. To be an apostle, you had to have seen the risen Savior Jesus face to face. You had to have been commissioned by him. Paul says, I'm an apostle, guys. He wrote nearly half the New Testament. I have a right to your support because of my apostleship. Second, isn't there a universal human custom of labor and reward? That if you work, you should receive the fruits of your labor. You should be rewarded with wages, with compensation. Does that just apply to everybody else and not to me? Third, doesn't God's law in the Old Testament state that a worker is worth his wages? Fourth, you guys in Corinth are supporting other itinerant evangelists and preachers. Why not us? Why are we left out of that. Fifth, isn't it the pattern of of the Old Testament for priests who serve in the temple to partake of a portion of the that which is brought to them? Isn't that a pattern for how the priesthood was to be supported? And then sixth, didn't Jesus command that those who proclaim the gospel get their living by the gospel? Basically, Paul is saying, I have a right to ask for and receive financial support from you, Corinthians. I led you to Christ. (laughs) I founded the church. I planted the church. I ministered to you. I have a right to this. But then notice verse 12, second part of the verse. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. I'm letting it go. But we would endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Paul is saying, I don't want to do anything that would hinder the advance of the gospel. It's interesting, the word obstacle there has to do with uneven pavement or a chopped up road, kind of like we have out front of the church these days. (laughs) Paul is saying, I want the gospel to have smooth sailing into the hearts of people. I don't want to put any obstacle in front of them. Notice he says, we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in front of the gospel. 
In Paul's value system, the unhindered spread of the gospel was paramount and everything else was secondary, even his own rights and conveniences. He voluntarily endured all kinds of deprivation. He denied himself what he had a right to so as to put no obstacle in front of people's reception of the gospel. He's saying, I don't want to be a stumbling block to anybody by taking money for ministry. And so wherever he went in those early days, he took a second job wherever he went. Do you remember what his job was? He made tents. So he was a bivocational minister, pastor, shepherd, apostle. By day, he taught and preached and discipled people in the gospel. By night, he made tents so as to be able to support himself financially and not be a burden on these new, young, fledgling churches that he had planted. Later on in his ministry, when the churches that he had started were more stable and more mature, he gladly received financial support. If you read Philippians 4, you'll see that. And in his later writings, he advocated the generous support of pastors as a matter of practice, 1 Timothy 5.17. But in those early years, when he was ministering the gospel in virgin territory and new churches were being planted and they were young and just starting to get their feet under them and just starting to get some traction, Paul gladly relinquished his right to receive support, and he did it, he says, for the sake of the gospel. You know, Pastor Brian mentioned that we're, as a church, getting ready to turn 25 and celebrate that uh, at the end of next month. And there's a video that's being put together, and my wife and I have been um, looking at slides. I guess this has been date nights, you know, for several nights. Looking at old slides. Remember slides? Remember back in the day, you'd take these pictures and Kodak would produce them. There'd be slides and you'd put them in this little carousel thing. Remember those? That's what they had back in the 80s and the early 90s. And so we've been, that's what we took back in the day. And so we've been looking through some of those. And it's just, remember the 80s? I mean, more hair, less pounds for some people, big glasses, big poofy hair. Loud colors, it's been kind of fun looking through some of those things. And just got us thinking about the early days here, 85, 86, 87. And I remember that back in the early days of this church, when New Life was in its infancy and just coming to be, almost all of our leaders worked jobs in the community to help support New Life and so that we wouldn't be a financial burden to the church. Pastor Brian worked for a printing company for more than four years. I worked uh, in the accounting department of an insurance company for about four and a half years. Just about everybody on our team worked jobs in the community, took second jobs, so as not to be a burden to this brand new church that was just getting off the ground and was in its infancy. And we took, I think, a special kind of joy and satisfaction in that, in knowing that we could say to people, look, we're, we're not doing this for the money. But because we love the gospel and we love the church of Jesus and God has called us to this. Later, when new life became more mature and more established and got its legs under it, we were asked to come on staff full time and started to receive a salary. And we've been very grateful for that all of these years. Paul was establishing that he had a right to receive support from the churches that he started but for the sake of not hindering the gospel, he voluntarily let it go, did not claim the right, did not exercise it. 
relinquished it. And notice the pride that he took in being able to say this. Verse 15. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things now to secure any such provision. (laughs) Saying, I'm not trying to slip in a little backhanded request here that, you know, you guys start sending me something. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. So again, Paul's just being real here, telling us what's in his heart. Verse 16, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. We'll come back to that. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? Verse 18, that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make use of my right in the gospel. Wow. Paul says, I'd rather die, I'd rather die than be accused of preaching the gospel for money. It's interesting. He says, I... I have a ground for boasting that I rejoice in. And the word that's translated boasting is a word that can refer to the proud, arrogant kind of boasting. Or it can refer to the joyful satisfaction that fills your heart when you know you've done something good that you didn't have to do. And I believe that's the sense that the word is used here. I think what Paul is saying is this. There's a decision I made that I take great joy in. In fact, it brings me so much joy that I would never give it up. And here it is. I chose to preach the gospel free of charge and thereby remove a hindrance to people embracing the gospel. And he says this is something that he was free to do or not to do. Jesus had not laid any compulsion on him either way. He got to make his choice. Now, interestingly, he states that his decision, that that decision was unlike his call to preach the gospel, which he says he had little choice in. Verse 16, if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul's saying when it comes to just to, to preaching the gospel, I've been called. I'm under orders. I am compelled to preach the gospel. And do you remember the story of how that came about? Paul, then Saul, riding on a horse to Damascus, going to arrest Christians because he hated Christ and hated Christians. And on that journey, Jesus showed up in his glory, knocked Saul off his horse, knocked him on on his can, basically, blinded him, and then said, I got plans for you, buddy. You're going to go preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, when the second person of the Holy Trinity shows up in person, in his glory, knocks you off your horse, blinds you, and tells you he's got plans for you, then you, at that moment, come under orders. It's a mandate. And Paul did, or Saul did, what you should do when Jesus calls you. And he said, yes, Lord, what will you have me to do? Just direct me. You're my master. I'm under orders. The sovereign call of Jesus was placed upon him. He says, I have no choice. So don't give me a lot of credit for preaching the gospel. 
I'm compelled to preach it. Woe to me if I don't preach it. But preaching it free of charge, preaching it without receiving remuneration was his choice. And he took special joy in that. By the way, I believe there's still a call from Jesus to preach and proclaim and advance the gospel as your life's work. It's a special call, I believe. It's not given to everyone. But one way you know you've been called to do this is you begin to feel this compulsion in your spirit. I've got to do this. Something outside of myself is reaching into me and drawing this out of me. Like Jesus has his hooks in me and he's drawing me and he's calling me to preach the gospel. It won't let up. It won't go away. Paul felt it. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Others in scripture felt it. Jeremiah said, your your word is burning in my belly like a fire. I've got to proclaim this. Others have felt the call of Jesus. I have in my life. And without a doubt, Jesus is calling some in our church to this. And when that happens, when God's calling you, something's burning inside of you. The only appropriate response is to say, yes, Jesus, I will. That's called surrender to the call to preach and proclaim the gospel and make the advancing of the gospel your life's vocation, your life's work. And I believe God is calling some in our church to this. I am in these SOMA classes, and there's some guys in those classes, and the reason they're taking classes is because they something is burning inside of them that they want to get equipped and get prepared. We uh, sponsor a little preaching lab every month, and some, some people come, and they preach the gospel, and we, we critique each other and that sort of thing. And I can see in some of these guys, there's a fire in there. There's a calling there. They're being compelled to give their lives totally yielded to the service of the gospel. And if God's calling you to that, if you sense that, I would so encourage you to yield to that call, to surrender to it, You say, well, what's going to happen after that? What are all the next steps? Don't worry about all that. If God told you right now everything he had planned for you, you would just have a heart attack and die on the spot. (laughs) So all you need to do is today just surrender and say, yes, Lord, and trust him with the succeeding steps of getting prepared and becoming equipped in the word to do that. And I pray that God calls more and more from among us to this. And then I would encourage you to tell somebody. Just say, you know, I'm sensing maybe someone who's spiritual, someone who's attuned to God. I'm sensing this. And let others affirm that call in you. Well, once Paul gets on this subject of his calling to preach the gospel, he just goes with it and begins to reveal the passion that God put in his heart to spread the gospel to as many people as he could and the price that he was willing to pay to do that. His passion that his life be consumed by proclaiming and living the gospel. Notice verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law 
that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, just kind of slips that in there, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak. I think he's talking about the weaker brother or weaker sister like we saw last weekend and a couple weekends ago. I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. You ever heard that before? Wondered where it was in the Bible? There it is. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them, those that I win, in its blessings, gospel blessings. Do you feel his passion? Paul's saying, this is it for me. This is life for me. Preaching and proclaiming and winning people to the gospel. This is, this is what I live for. It's what I'm all about. It's what I bleed if you cut me. Any cost, any price I might be asked to pay is worth it in order to win people to the gospel. And that was his aim, to win them. He says it six times, that I might win them, that I might win them, that I might win this group of people, that I might win some from this group and this group and the weak, and that I might save some. One of Paul's deepest desires was to win people to the gospel of Jesus Christ, as many as possible, that they might be saved. Saved from what? Saved from sin, their sin. Saved from the eternal consequences and condemnation for our sins. Saved from the wrath of a holy God against our sin. Paul's saying, I... It's everything to me to just win people to the gospel. I think for us, this just begs the question, are you seeking to win someone to the gospel? Am I seeking to win someone to the gospel? Some of you are. One of the uh, gentlemen in our SOMA classes was sharing with the rest of us last week that God has used him to win a a student at OSU, to Christ. And he was thrilled about that, and his face was just lit up as he talked about it. Another guy was talking about someone at work that he's just been feeding little bits of the gospel to, you know, every couple days, just feeding a little bit more of the gospel. And while we were in class, he got a text on his cell from the guy saying, I, I, I want to know more about this Jesus. Can you help me? Some of you have that passion to win someone to the gospel. See how deep this was in Paul. His his passion to proclaim it and to remove artificial barriers to the gospel led him to make two sacrificial choices. The first, he decided that he was willing to adapt, to adapt to cultural customs to win other people to the gospel. Verse 19, though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. What he means by saying I have made myself a servant to all is this. I will voluntarily lay aside my preferences and let go of my freedoms and rights. And I will adapt my life to the cultural customs of those I'm trying to reach. And I will do this so as to remove any artificial barriers to the gospel. Now, the gospel has some offensiveness 
in itself, doesn't it? But he's talking about adding artificial barriers to people receiving the gospel. He said, I don't want to be a barrier. If the gospel's offensive, that's fine. That's one thing. It is what it is. But I don't want to add any artificial obstacles or, or barriers to it. And so if that meant, as in the case of Jewish people, Paul abiding by their ceremonial regulations and observing their special days or refraining from eating certain foods because they felt those were unclean, then he said, I will do that. Even though in Christ he was free from all those obligations and observances. When he was in the Gentile culture, he said, I'm willing to eat what they eat, wear what they wear, listen to their music, all in order to not put any stumbling block in front of their reception to the gospel. When he was with weaker brothers and sisters, he said, I will adapt to them. I will adapt to their weaker consciences for the same reasons. Now, this practice of adapting to the customs of a culture has a name. It's called contextualization, contextualizing the gospel. And we should do this. We should do this in service to those that we're trying to win, to As Paul said, be a servant of all in this way. But in so doing, we should be very careful to not compromise the actual gospel message itself. There is a danger in contextualizing the gospel, and that is the danger of compromising the gospel while doing it. And Paul would never have advocated massaging, changing, tweaking, truncating, taking the edge off the actual gospel message. He never would have advocated that. The gospel is what it is, and yes, it has some offensiveness to it, but Paul is saying, I want to avoid putting any additional barriers in the way of people hearing and receiving the gospel. So the lurking danger of contextualization is compromise. Paul is an advocate of true contextualization. The practice of sacrificing, denying yourself, and laying aside your rights for the sake of winning people to the gospel. Now, notice that Paul was not only intent on winning people to the gospel through contextualizing, adapting to their customs, but also something else. He draws in another metaphor here. Look at verse 24. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run? So now he's, he's grabbing hold of a cultural event that his readers would have been very aware of. The Greeks had two sets of Olympic games. One was known as the Olympics. The other one was known as the Isthmian Games. And the Isthmian Games were held in Corinth. It's like the Olympics, right, in your town. And so his readers in Corinth would have been very familiar when Paul starts talking about the race and the games. Many of them probably attended those races and those games. They knew what he was talking about. And he's going to draw some analogies from the Olympics to life. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. (laughs) Did you know that if you won the race in the Isthmian Games, you know what you got as a prize? A wreath, a garland of leaves placed on your head. (laughs) Woohoo! And then the, the few fleeting moments of fame that came along with that. But no doubt those wreaths often end up like your high school trophies and mine, 
in some cardboard box in your basement somewhere that nobody cares about anymore. Paul's saying they do it to win one of those wreaths, but we run our race to win an imperishable wreath. That means it'll last forever, a reward that keeps on rewarding forever. Verse 26, so I do not run aimlessly. I practice with a purpose. That's what he's saying. I do not box like one beating the air, shadow boxing, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. That haunts me a little bit. Does it haunt you? Paul had this nagging concern or fear of being disqualified. And I read that and I go, you? You're Paul. (laughs) You're an apostle. You saw Jesus Christ face to face. He commissioned you to preach his gospel. You wrote nearly half the books in the New Testament. And you're afraid of being disqualified? Yikes. You're disciplining your body and restraining your fleshly impulses so that you don't run outside the lines of your race and forfeit your privilege of preaching the gospel? How much more should I be concerned about that? Paul uses the the games, the Olympic games, and particularly the, the running race to draw some analogies to life. He says life is like a race, and that's a common metaphor for life, isn't it? You call it the race of your life. Like in the Olympic races, there are many runners. Like in the Olympic races, there's a prize given to the winner. Like in the Olympic race, those who want to win the race must stay focused on the prize. Like in the Olympic race, those who want to win must go into strict training and exercise self-control and discipline their bodies. Practice with a purpose. It's interesting, in the Isthmian Games, the athletes who wanted to compete had to, it was required that they go into 10 months of strict training, and that final month was actually spent in Corinth with personal trainers, getting them ready, coaching them, pushing them to be ready to compete. Paul says, I discipline my body. Now, the King James says, I buffet my body. And some Christians read that and they see buffet and they see the word buffet. And they're thinking, saying, I buffet my body. I go to the buffet every day. That's not what it means. The word literally was a boxing term. It meant to punch somebody in the eye and give them a black eye. And Paul's saying, I beat my body into submission I restrain my fleshly impulses. I deny myself. I discipline myself. Why? Because I don't want to be disqualified from my race, which involves winning as many people to the gospel as possible. That's the purpose of self-discipline and training. Paul put his body into subjection, even slavery, he says. Like in the Olympic race... A runner can be disqualified by failing to prepare adequately or by violating the rules of participation. He uses the term disqualified. When a runner got disqualified, he he not only couldn't win the race, he couldn't even run in the race. 
Paul did not want to spend his life preaching the gospel and then do something that would disqualify him from doing that thing that he was most passionate about. You ever had a child competing in a sport and they get disqualified and aren't allowed to compete because of their grades or because of some infraction they committed? It's very disheartening, isn't it? DQ'd. You're out. Paul had a healthy, holy fear of that. And it acted as a restraint on him. So he says there's a lot of similarities to the games in the race of life, but there's some contrast too. Unlike the Olympic race, in the race of life, there are many winners, not just one. Unlike in the Olympic race, every runner in life has his own course, different from the other runners. Hebrews 12 calls it the race that is set before us. You have a particular course that Jesus has set before you in your life. It's different from those around you. It's different from mine. We each have our own course to run in our lives, don't we? And we can win the race of our own course. It's not against other people. It's against the evil one, and it's against our own flesh. And unlike the Olympic races, the prize at the end of the race is not some little wreath. It's an eternal reward that will keep rewarding you forever and ever and ever and ever. It's imperishable, it says. You'll be as excited about it a million years from now or more so than you are the day you first receive it. Second Timothy 4.8, the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award us on that day. And ultimately, I believe the prize is Jesus himself. That Jesus, the author and finisher of the race, offers himself at the end of the race to his people as their highest joy, their greatest glory. Jesus. And so if we want to run the race in such a way as to win, we keep our eyes on the prize that day when we're going to look into the eyes of Jesus Christ. And we want to hear him say, don't we? Good job. Good job. You ran the course I set out for you. You didn't get disqualified from the race. You won as many people to the gospel as possible. You glorified me. Good job. I offer now myself to you forever. I'm the prize. My joys forever. I think the point of the analogy is clear, isn't it? If Olympic athletes can train and discipline their bodies and restrict their liberties, all in an effort to win a measly pine wreath and a few fleeting moments in the spotlight, should not we, who believe in Jesus, discipline our bodies so that we can win the race of our lives? Win as many people to the gospel as possible and ultimately attain the prize that's worth everything, Jesus. You see, life is serious. It's like a game, but it's not a game. It's your one and only life, your course, my course. Paul says, run in order to win. Do whatever it takes. Discipline your body. Restrain your fleshly impulses. In your life of 60, 70, 80 years, seek God to use you to win as many people to the gospel as possible. And I'll be waiting there at the end of the race.
Our memory verse for this week is actually half of one verse and half of another. <laughs> it's on your outline there, 1 Corinthians 9, 22b to 23a. Let's read this together. Let's read it twice aloud together, can we? I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. One more time. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. For us, for new life, how does 1 Corinthians 9 intersect our lives? I think there are three calls that flow out of this chapter that demand three responses. First is the gospel call. Paul says, I want to win people to the gospel. I'll do anything to win people to the gospel. And God is still issuing the gospel call to people today, isn't he? I'm issuing it right now. Because it's the only message that can save people from their sins, from eternal judgment, and make them right with God. What is the gospel? What is it? Paul was consumed by it. What is it? The word means good news. The gospel is good news. It is the good news of God's promise and plan to reconcile sinful, rebellious mankind to himself through the atoning death and victorious resurrection of his son, Jesus, for his own great glory and our good. That's what the gospel is. And the gospel, hearing the gospel involves you in a great privilege and a great responsibility. Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel. I'm very aware that there are in this room today at least three kinds of people. In the first category are those of you who have in your life truly repented of your sins. You've been broken, contrite over your sins, and you've turned from them and from loving them to Jesus Christ as your only hope of ever being right with God because his blood was shed for your sins on the cross. And you know that and you've embraced that and nothing else. You've forsaken your own efforts, your own attempts to be good enough to earn heaven, to earn God's favor, to earn a right standing with God. You've realized, I could never be good enough. Only Jesus was good enough. And God offers me his perfect straight-A report card as a gift and takes my C's, D's, and F's. The great exchange. And there are those of you in this room, you're there. You've done that. You're saved. You know it. Your trust is fully in Jesus Christ. And when we sing and about the cross and the blood, your heart is just, yeah. There are others of you in this room, you're not saved. You're not born again. You're lost. You know it. You know it. Today could be your day of salvation. Today. God's calling you through his gospel to his son to repent and believe the gospel. And there's a third category of people in the room, and those are those of you who think you're saved and you're not. 
and I'm really concerned about you. You think you're saved. You've, you're self-assured that you're right with God. Maybe you'd say, you know, I prayed a prayer many years ago or filled out a card or I got baptized or something. And the truth about you is you're no more saved than the chair you're sitting in. I'm not trying to be mean. I just think God wants to jolt some of you so you don't get to the end of your life and see the Son of God standing there and he looks at you and goes, I never knew you. <laughs> Depart from me. And you go, but, 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 I, I don't know you. We didn't have a relationship. You never truly repented of your sins, saw your sin for what it my father, and you never put your full faith and trust solely in me. And I'm concerned that there are some of you who come to church every week and you think maybe because you come to church or because you're a good person or because you prayed a prayer 20 years ago or 40 years ago that you're saved and you're not. There's no evidence. There's no fruit. Where's the, where's the deep, growing affection for Jesus Christ? Where's the love for the gospel? Where's the growing hunger for the word of God? Where's the love for the brothers and sisters in Christ and the delight in them? These are the evidences of a transformed heart. Did you know that? The Bible never says, oh, try to go back and remember. If you want to know if you're saved, go back and try to remember what you said when you prayed. It never says that. It always points to your life and says, is there evidence? Because if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. There's a transformation that's happened. And Jesus said only a few make it through the narrow gate. And I'm concerned. And today could be your day of salvation because Jesus loves you and gave his life for you. And he's all you need. And he still says, come unto me. And I won't cast you out. Bring all your sin. Bring all your junk. Bring all your pride, bring all your self-righteousness. I died for it all. I'll save you. I'll save you from the holy wrath of my Father against your sin. So there's that call today, I believe, from this passage, the gospel call. And I pray that today is the day of salvation for some of you. I see a second call. It's the call that Paul had to devote your whole life to the work of the gospel, to surrender to that call. And some of you, as I've talked this morning, your heart was pounding. It's like, that's me. I sense that. I think Jesus is calling me to preach and proclaim and advance the gospel and make that my life's work. And again, I would say, you don't have to know all the future steps. You just have to obey Christ now and surrender and say yes and tell somebody. The third call I see goes out to all of us, and that's the call to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. That's what Paul did. He said, I'll, I'll pay any price. I'll give up anything, all things for the sake of the gospel. What are you giving up for the sake of the gospel? I've had to ask myself this question this week. What am I giving up for the sake of advancing the gospel? Am I giving up any time, any money, any rights, any freedoms? You know, I mentioned money. For 30 or 40 bucks a month, you can sponsor a little precious child in Makono, in Uganda, where I'm going next spring and hope some of you will go with me. 
I'm telling you, that child that you sponsor will hear the gospel because part of this child sponsorship program is that they be involved in the Sunday school and hear the gospel. And we know the pastor of the church. You could do that. Are, are you sacrificing anything for the gospel? Something. There's got to be something you're, you're doing to sacrifice for the gospel. A lot of people in our church losing weight right now. It's a good thing. But I, I wonder, you know, is that all just about looking like a supermodel? Or is it connected at all to the gospel? Are you concerned that your testimony might be being hindered? And that's why you're doing it. Are you sacrificing for the sake of the gospel? Three calls from this passage and three responses. Would you bow your heads with me? I'm going to ask some pastors and spiritual leaders to take a place here back to my left and right, back in the prayer cove areas. And I want to ask you first about the first call, the call of the gospel And I would like to see the raised hands of anybody in the room who would say, I need to be saved. I have never truly repented of my sins. God's opened my eyes to that. I need to embrace the cross of Christ as my only hope so that I'm forgiven and cleansed and made right with God. I think God's calling me to that today. You know, it says in Acts that God opened Lydia's heart to hear the message. And maybe that's you today. God's opened your heart, opened your eyes to see I need to be saved. Would you lift your hand and say, that's me today. That's me. That's me. Yes, thank you. Anybody else? Raise your hand. Yes, thank you. I need to repent. I need to trust in Jesus as my sacrifice, my Savior, and Him alone. Lift your hands high all around the room. That's me. Today needs to be my day of salvation. Yes, I see that. Anybody else? You can put your hands down. Anybody else? God, call people through your gospel to your son. Would you, from where you sit, just pour your heart out to Jesus right now? Here's a biblical prayer. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Say that to him from your heart. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I'm a sinner. I'm separated from you, but I want Christ to bring me to God. Have mercy on me, a sinner. In a few moments when we're singing together, I'm going to ask you if that is your prayer today, that God's brought you to that point, that you get up out of your seat and go to one of these people and just tell them, today is my day of salvation. I'm believing the gospel today, repenting of my sins today, being forgiven and saved today. If you're one of those who is being called to devote your life's work to the gospel, come and tell somebody. Come and tell one of our pastors. Just say, hey, I think I'm sensing God's calling. I want to surrender to that call. I don't know what all the steps are. I just know I'm supposed to do this today. And they'll pray with you. Maybe you want to come and just kneel and pray for an unsaved person that you love and make Paul's prayer your prayer. God, by all means, use me to win this person, this loved one to you. I think he loves to hear that.